But it's biology that I love the most. It has a beauty in it that's actually quite hard to capture in numbers. That's Yuval Cohen, CEO of Corbis Pharmaceuticals. Join me now to hear my conversation with Yuval at Corbis headquarters in Norwood, Massachusetts. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. This morning, I'm in Norwood, Massachusetts with co-founder and CEO of Corbis Pharmaceuticals, Yuval Cohen. Yuval, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you, John, for having me on your show. Yuval, how did you find yourself here at Corpus Pharmaceuticals? In 2013, I had um, left my previous company, um, and naively I thought I would take uh, a six-month sabbatical. Uh, it lasted for about a week, and um, a good friend, a good, a very persistent friend of mine, uh, insisted on introducing me to. Um, the other co-founder of, of Corbis, and um, it was a meeting in New York City, and uh, I just fell in love with the project, and the rest has just been um, a really um, wonderful adventure ever since. Was that a surprise to you, how quickly that happened? It's interesting, you know, in retrospect, so we are, officially Corbis was founded um, in April of 2014, so if you think we're about five and a half years old. We started with um, initially two individuals. The day we were founded, I think we had three individuals in the company. Um, and today there are about 130 of us. Um, we started with an idea for a drug and no clinical data per se. Uh, today we have a pipeline that includes our lead drug in four separate clinical programs, uh, probably re- close to a thousand patients in clinical studies. We're probably approaching that, um, and a second drug they'll be he- heading into the clinic uh, soon, uh, and then a library of preclinical compounds um, in the hundreds. So if we look back, yes, it, it has been very, very fast. Um, but every day is is we take it one day at a time, um, and every day is just um, tends to have something about it that's pretty remarkable. How about that decision point when you when you began to look and you thought it might be a six month process? What, did that come hurtling at you? Did that that decision like this is the place? Did that come as a surprise? It is. So it really was uh, love at first sight. It it was one of these things that. Um, was very binary. Um, I sat down, I heard the story, um, and even at that stage, the story I found to be very exciting and and very scientifically robust. Um, What appealed to me about it is there are elements in the story that were things that I was very passionate about, uh, rare diseases, inflammation, um, and there were also a combination of here's this entire new area of biology, these cannabinoids, uh, coupled with um, here's something that is based on very, very robust science. It was really, even now, looking back, uh, quite unusual just how much data there was around that uh, foundational asset we had. Um, Just so many... um, cellular experiments, animal model experiments, even some human models um, 
And that's very unusual to find an asset that's on the one hand so fresh and undiscovered, but on the other hand just comes with a, a very, very large amount of data. Yuval, how did you decide you wanted to found and lead a biopharma company as opposed to go to work for some big biopharma company? It's a very good question. I think it's a combination of two things. One of them is just good fortune, having a series of things happen in your life that, that lead you to these opportunities. Um, I had trained as a scientist. I did my PhD at the uh, Curie Institute in Paris. Um, and like all uh, people who start their PhD, you typically are very um, naive and, and idealistic and think I'm going to become a member of academia and a professor. And um, the attrition rate for that is pretty high. Um, it takes a very special kind of person to um, uh, survive, uh, for example, you know, experiments that last for 17 hours and then go, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Um, and that wasn't me. I, I, I finished my PhD. I was very pleased with it. It was an incredible opportunity in so many ways. I, it taught me so many things. But I knew that academia was just not something I was going to be passionate about. If, and I believe that if you're not passionate about something, you're probably not going to be very good at it. Um, and it seems a little bit of a waste of a life to do something you're not good at. Um, and so one of them was sort of that background, good fortune. And the other one, I think, was uh, to a certain extent temperamental, which is um, I enjoy working so much collaboratively with people, um, building teams, etc. But I think I would find it difficult to work in a very large organization. Um, I, I probably just don't have the temperament for it. So founding companies, growing companies, to me has been uh, so far a, just a, a wonderful fit. Yeah. Well, the ability to have an impact, if you think about Corbis, if all goes well, and we're very optimistic about it, our lead drug lenabacin for our four indications um, will target four indications where the combined number of patients it's around about 700,000 people in between North America, Europe, Japan, and Korea. The diseases we're targeting are have a devastating effect on, on the individual. These are not diseases of inconvenience. These are not mild diseases. These are diseases that really are, at a minimum, and probably as an understatement, disruptive. Um, the morbidity is can be severe. So in other words, the, the effect on the patient's um, physical well-being, their ability to work, their ability to function, um, their ability to be part of society. If you have a disease, for example, like dermatomyositis, one of the rare autoimmune diseases we target, one of the challenge, many challenges these patients face is they're photosensitive. So think about what it's like to have a disease where exposure to sunlight is excruciating. Um, think about the isolation that that creates. So there are diseases of really very significant morbidity, and sadly, in all of our diseases, to various degrees, these are diseases that have mortality involved with them, ranging from diseases where, for example, dermatomyositis, the, 
latest statistics we have is roughly one in four patients will not survive the disease. And going all the way to cystic fibrosis, which tragically is still a terminal disease. Um, and so the stakes are very, very high for these patients. And going back to our conversation, John, of you know why we do what we do, the ability to impact, again, potentially hundreds of thousands of patients who are living with these diseases is something that I think really galvanizes everyone at Corbis. What were you hoping to achieve that could be done here and not at another company? Corbis, I think, is a combination of a number of things. The one is obviously our pipeline. These are unique compounds. By definition, because they're patent protected, no one else has them. Um, and so these assets are proprietary and are ours. The second aspect is the team we've built and the knowledge and expertise that we have. I, we're not a large company by any stretch of imagination. We really are a very small company still. But the team we've assembled collectively has um, a knowledge base and an expertise base, which I think really is quite out of the ordinary. Um, we consider ourselves to be the world's specialist company when it comes to the biology of the endocannabinoid system. Uh, and we consider ourselves to be a company that executes really very, very well in when it comes to clinical development of these rare inflammatory diseases. And interesting enough, I think because of our size, what we don't have in scale, we gain in nimbleness, in creativity, in our ability to maneuver very, very quickly, to be very responsive. And if you look again at what we've achieved in five and a half years, it's certainly, I think, by any objective measure, has been a much faster development program than what a, for example, a big pharma would do, while preserving the robustness of the program and the, the high standards of execution. When people ask you, what do you do for a living? How do you like to answer that? I think the most generic answer I say is, you know, I'm in the pharmaceutical industry. I work on development of novel drugs. There are certain settings, especially these days, where I find myself saying, oh, I'm in cannabinoids. And that, I have to tell you, always triggers a response of, and oddly enough, a very positive response. Nine times out of 10, it's not the cannabinoids they think we're the, you know, of when, when we mention that term. But I do think on a, on a somewhat serious note, it is a, a barometer to how society at large has changed its perception and has become also much more familiar with this term that I think up until even a year ago, maybe two years ago, was a term that was probably would cause at a minimum confusion and probably not a lot of positive feelings from the majority of societies. On college campuses, I suspect, it's always been a little bit of a different answer. And now what we've seen is uh, an extraordinary change in how society thinks of this term cannabinoids and what this biology, because really what they, the term denotes is a biology, even though most people probably don't think of it that way, but we're really talking about biology and what this biology actually 
holds in potential for human health. What have you learned over the years about which management style is you or works best for you? I think that a manager, and I think a CEO is a special type of manager. Um, you know, ultimately, I'm responsible for everything. It's it's, and that's that's part of what I signed up to do. Um, at the same time, I think the challenge of any CEO is, by definition, he or she, a doesn't know everything. That would be impossible, and can't possibly make all the decisions. Again, you can do that maybe when a company has three people in it. Doing so when you have a larger and larger workforce is unrealistic, probably counterproductive. And so I think the challenge for anyone is finding the balance between leadership and management. Leadership for me is strategy, the direction of the company, and providing a vision that I hope is inspiring, both internally and externally. Incredible, that's really important. Management is execution. And what I find works for me, and I'm guessing it's a fairly generic answer, is the key is to surround myself with people who are exceptional, who know much more than I do. Thankfully, all of them do, although it's a low bar. I'll be the first to admit it. And um, who have, on the one hand, the level of experience where they are they can act autonomously and don't require um, day-to-day management, don't require um, expertise from the CEO, but on the other hand are themselves great leaders, great listeners, and collaborative. I think that's really important. In a company of any size, but again, especially a company of our size, it's so important that this notion of um, a team, as generic as that term is, really is in the front of everyone's mind. Um, we are, on the one hand, both too small, and on the other hand, both too large, for folks to sort of do their own thing, uh, for folks to sort of spin off to another direction that's not aligned with what we're doing. So. Again, to summarize, I think it's a combination of being there, uh, being able to guide people through the vision that we have, but on the other hand, empowering people, not stifling people, um, and acknowledging that they have this expertise that is precisely what you need for the job. You know, I'd say that what is unique about the Corbus culture um, we have many ingredients that are that are fairly common you know the this notion that we're very patient centric I should hope that everyone in our industry is patient if they're not they're not doing something they're doing something you shouldn't be doing um, this notion of, of sort of engagement etc all of those things are important I think that we're we we do stand apart I think is I think we've built a corporate culture and a corporate structure where we take people who
who would normally be pigeonholed. In other words, we take someone, um, clinical trial monitoring, for example, and normally that individual will be seen in our industry as someone who's highly specialized and should be kept in that box for the rest of their career. And what we've done really well here, and sometimes it's chaotic and sometimes it's a nail biter, but overall I wouldn't change it for the world, is we take these people and we start to expose them, to introduce them to skill sets and problems and challenges and teams that are outside of their the scope of what on in paper they're they're designed to do and for some folks that's scary and some folks you know they have their own but going back to what i think makes us unusual what makes our culture stand out what's different about us is most of the time they thrive they just flower and we've had folks who started corbis in with one set of talents and have actually matured and evolved and now do something at Corbis that is entirely, entirely different. And for me, if we think about culture, um, inward-facing culture, that's remarkable. That's so, so, so exciting. Um, so I'm immensely proud of that. Do you remember what it was you wanted to do when you were eight or nine? And does that have anything to do with what you're doing now? So my dad's an engineer and my mom's a biochemist. So I guess I could have ended up either in life sciences or fixing stuff. I'm terrible at fixing things. Um, so I guess I was doomed to go into life sciences and the rest, the rest is history. Did you have that image? Like as several CEOs I've talked to said they watched, especially UK guys and women, we, I watched TV shows and I saw myself wearing that lab coat or I saw myself that, that pilot or you know, whatever. Did you create any kind of visual image of yourself at that point? Not really, I have to tell you. It was interesting. I was never, I never had an interest in becoming a physician because it always occurred to me that it's such an enormously, the responsibility is so enormous there. Um, and the thought of being responsible for another person's life is terrifying. I think it really takes a very special type of individual to wake up every day and go, I'm going to deal with a problem and the risk is this, the problem might kill the person I'm dealing with. So it, it you know, it, I, that's why I'm, I, it's so incredible what they do. Um, I've always found science to be fascinating. Um, and the biological sciences more than the physical sciences. Um, I think my worst my worst course in college was organic chemistry. It's the only course I ever almost flunked. Um, although physical chemistry was a lot more fun because it was a lot more like math, much more like mathematics. But it's biology that I love the most. Um, it has a beauty in it that's actually quite hard to capture in numbers. Um, whereas mathematicians can actually do that. I just don't have that circuitry in my brain. Yuval, what's new at Corpus Pharmaceuticals? Last year in September, we made an announcement which I think was quite transformational for us. Um, up until then, Corbis was a company really focused on um, 
the biology of the endocannabinoid system, but exclusively around a single drug candidate, experimental drug candidate, lanabacin. And the way we think of it is, lanabacin is, we think, tremendously exciting, but it's also how we cut our teeth. It's around lanabacin that we built our team. It's around lanabacin that we gained our experience and insights into this biology. And last September, we announced that we had um, brought in um, what we believe is the world's most exciting and largest library of novel cannabinoid drugs, drug candidates. Um, and overnight, we went from having a single drug in our arsenal to having, I think these days, around 700 of them. Now, the vast majority, of course, are very early stage. There is one outlier that we're very excited about called CRB4001. The transformation has been, therefore, from a single asset company to a company that now has um, a robust platform uh, that has a library of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of putative future drugs. and can now use the expertise we build around lanabacin and again the team around lanabacin to tackle or um, um, analyze and advance more and more of these compounds and i think the change is philosophically between a company that will have we hope so a very successful drug that happens to be in this biology which is a great outcome. I mean, there's no monetarily, that's a wonderful outcome. And of course, for patients, that's a wonderful outcome. But the shift is now to a company that could really be a leader, a shaping voice in an entire biology, an entire field of biology. And that, John, doesn't happen a lot. There are some examples, um, they're all very successful, they're all remarkable. But it's not every day you come across a whole biological system in the human body and go, wait a minute, we understand the biology so well, how come there are no drugs targeting this biology? Or how come the drugs that are targeting it are so imperfect or have very niche drugs, etc.? So that's been, uh, I think, a remarkable change for us. When you tell the story of Corbus the way you just began to for me a moment ago, some people afterwards when you kind of test to hear what they heard will say yeah i get it thank you Yuval." some will say yeah i get it but they won't have gotten it they'll play back to you something it's not what you intended what when they misunderstand what do you help them to think oh no this is actually this the thing that comes to mind is not so much about the company but about the biology we target so by far i think the thing that would come to mind is people will go what are cannabinoids what is the endocannabinoid system? Some people will have never heard of it. Although these days, I have to tell you, that's becoming almost unheard of. Um, some people will say, some, on the other side of the spectrum, some people will be highly, highly knowledgeable. Um, they will have had familiarity with the receptors of the system, the, the signaling molecules in the body that target this, these receptors, what it does in the body. But again, that's probably a tiny minority. These are tend to be scientists or, or medical folk. 
And I'd say the folks in between fall into two camps. The smaller of the camps, just because it's been shrinking, are the folks who will have a negative reaction thinking, oh, this is cannabinoids have to do with ca- cannabis, with pot, with, with what they perceive to be a narcotic, and, and so the stigma around them. I think the reason that group of people is shrinking in number is because there have been so, such an extraordinary conversion, if I can use that term, from that camp to the camp that now goes, um, this very same concept is not a bad thing, it's actually a very exciting thing. Uh, and this is where society is changing. We're seeing, and, and a number of, of, of points, John, sort of the most ro- scientifically robust aspect of it are we're seeing um, cannab- cannabis-derived drugs being approved by the FDA and going out there no different than any other prescription drug made by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, our colleagues at GW Pharma have Epidilex, which is um, highly purified CBD for rare forms of childhood epilepsy. Uh, in Europe, they have Sativex, which is a a combination of CBD and THC for spasticity and multiple sclerosis. Both of these drugs are as robust as any other pharmaceutical and, and certainly seem to be very efficient and really have made a d- difference in patients' lives. Um, there are other drugs, in fact, that have been around for, in some cases, decades that people never think of that they're made out of THC, for example. So Marinol. Marinol is a drug that's given to patients undergoing chemotherapy to deal with nausea, to stimulate um, hunger, it's THC. It's been around for probably 25, 30 years. Um, But beyond that, I think the societal changes around um, cannabis to a certain extent, but primarily around CBD as its component, and the notion that this plant has these components that are useful in, in human wellness, is uh, endemic. I mean, it's ubiquitous. You see it everywhere. In a neighborhood I live in, um, you it's very difficult to walk more than 10 paces before you encounter coffee with CBD, toothpaste with CBD, dog treats with CBD. I think some of that perhaps is, you know, to use the, the famous uh, saying, irrational exuberance. Um, but a lot of it is actually scientifically very robust. Again, literature dating back 20 years. The opening, I think, that it gives Corbis is it allows us to start talking about, on the one hand, what is a very complex biology that normally would only be understandable to scientists and, and physicians, but to start to be able to engage society at large through the prism of these cannabinoids that you are excited about, here is what they do scientifically, here's what they do medically and biologically. And in a sense, you're preaching to the converted, which is a very good starting point. And then the next point in that, and goes back now to the original question of what, what do we find ourselves sometimes having to clarify to people? The next step from that, John, is to be able to say, now that you're excited about the biology, let me tell you how we at Corbis are using novel chemical entities that have nothing to do with the plant, that are not naturally made, 
that are made in that sense, like most of our pharmaceuticals are made by designing novel structures, how we're using those compounds in order to harness the power of that biology. Because the challenge that we have is, and this is the case across all pharma, so many of our traditional um, pharma started with what is now known as herbal remedies. You know, if you wanted aspirin, you'd go to the bark of a willow tree and you'd boil it and you make tea out of it and there's a tiny amount of aspirin in there. But that's how we discovered this biology. Whether it's stuff that came from plants, whether it's stuff that came from venom, whether it's stuff that came from other animal life. And what we've done in the pharmaceutical industry in the last pretty much 100 years is taken that knowledge base and amplified it by creating novel compounds that don't exist in nature that interact with the biology that nature was telling us was there. And that is what Corbis is doing around the endocannabinoid system, and that's what we're so excited about. Do people receive that message you just gave through the, the, the understanding the word synthesize or engineer? How do they how do they best understand what that last point? I think once we sit down, and again, it depends on the audience, but I think across all these audiences, they understand it. Um, a, because it's been done so many times in other fields of pharmaceutical research. Um, if you go to your local pharmacy, local drugstore, there are not a lot of drugs that are still extracted from plants out there. Um, but so many of the drugs we have, that was their origin. I think the other thing that people understand intuitively is that modern science, modern pharmaceutical research, gives us tools that were not available before on improving Mother Nature, on making, for example, certain biological processes, augmenting them, and at the same time, making them much more specific. So I'll give you an interesting example. Let's look at the entire plant, for example, of, of cannabis. And there are 400 active compounds, at least, within the plant. Um, many of them probably interact with the human body. And it, the collective effect on the human body is extensive. It affects our brain in many ways very well, in some ways, in ways that are, are perhaps should be avoided under certain circumstances. It affects our immune system, again, typically not very potently and in a very generalized way. So you have all of these compounds targeting all of these complex processes in the body. What we can do with modern technology is design novel compounds, synthesize modern compounds, novel compounds that are laser focused. So for example, linabacin is a synthetic drug. It does not exist in nature. It targets the endocannabinoid system, but it's very specific in its action on the immune system while being designed to avoid an effect on the central nervous system, because we're not interested in that for the purposes of linabacin. And I think folks intuitively understand that we collectively as an industry, as, as a science, can actually do that and are harnessing that in the endocannabinoid system.
it's wonderful to see to be in a field where people are so engaged and so interested in it. It's an ex it's really a very significant advantage. I'm guessing that there are times when they say a small company with all of these candidates is that really possible? It's a very interesting question. I, I think that we are not quite that much of an outlier. Um, so if you look at our size and you look at the functions we have in here, we have all the pretty much all the functions that a big pharma would have. Um, some of them we outsource, of course, etc. We don't own factories, we don't have labs. But we are a microcosm of what a large organization would have. If all the right things are here. Um, in terms of execution, I'd say our execution has been um, really very, very, very competent. Um, but again, it, very logical, perfectly logical. Um, I think it's a reflection of people who are just experienced, um, thoughtful, nimble, um, but without sort of descending into the realm of the science fiction. Same thing around our, our, our science. But in many ways, we're very fortunate that, for example, imagine a situation where you discover a compound and you have no idea what it, how it does what it does. And there's just no literature, scientific literature, and no one's ever seen a compound like that. Nothing could be farther from the truth in case of cannabinoids. Cannabinoids really started as late, as late back as the, um, far back as the 1970s. The receptors are very well characterized. The uh, molecules that bind to the ligands, the molecules that bind to these receptors, very character well characterized. There are several thousand publications, peer-reviewed publications around cannabinoids. So the field is very, 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 very well understood. There really isn't a lot of science fiction around it. Um, the fiction is gone. You're just left with the science. But what's interesting is, yes, that drugs have been very challenging to make in these diseases, in these, from this biology, primarily because we really haven't had the tools. Um, the knowledge hadn't reached the critical mass, which it now has. Um, and I think also because there has just been so much emphasis on using this biology for um, targeting the brain, the central nervous system, um, pain, psychiatry, etc. And relatively very little attention put on how do we target the immune system with this. But I think there, there really isn't a lot of mystery. What makes a good partner for Corbus? If we're talking about, for example... Uh, commercial partners. Uh, we have two types of partnerships already, which is, again, very satisfying for a company as young as we are. We have partners from whom we have taken technology and brought it in-house, like um, Genuine Discovery Labs, with, with this library of novel compounds that target the endocannabinoid system. And then we have a different type of partner where we've taken our technology and given it to them to advance and commercialize, for example, Kaken Pharmaceuticals in Japan, who now have our, uh, they are our commercial partner for Linabacin for Japan for these rare autoimmune diseases. I think what they have in common is uh, where the fit is, um, 
great communication, that's really important. Alignment in goals, we both have to believe the same vision. And the understanding that um, together we can achieve much more than on our own. And I think when those things are in place, um, then it's, it's very successful. It really becomes very, very, uh, a very successful partnership. What good can you do in the world if Corbis succeeds as you hope it will? So the, the indications, the diseases we're targeting are um, very significant. Um, th- if we look at the nabism, all four of our diseases are uncommon. Three of them are actual um, designated as uh, rare diseases, as orphan diseases. Um, but they're not ultra rare. We're, we're not a company that targets diseases affecting you know, several hundred people or several dozen people. We are targeting in all of our diseases anywhere from 30,000 Americans in, with cystic fibrosis to probably as many as um, potentially um, 300,000 or even more Americans suffering from lupus. Um, they're all uncommon, so these are not diseases affecting millions of people, but they're affecting uh, a large number of people. So the impact, to begin with numerically, will be significant. Uh, also economically the impact is significant. That's a lot of people, um, if you can improve their lives, that has a lot of effects on society in terms of the cost of dealing with these people, the loss of productivity, etc. I think the other thing that's really important is just the impact on these individuals. These are, as I mentioned, diseases that have very high morbidity. Sadly, they are involved with high mortality. Our ability to change the trajectory of those diseases in terms of improving the quality of life, in terms of having folks return to the uh, workforce, return to school, um, and hopefully also live longer and a much better quality of life, all of that, we think, is, is very, very worthwhile. Yuval, how'd you go about choosing Norwood? There's a bunch of reasons why we decided to go to Norwood rather than going, for example, to Cambridge, Kendall Square, um, or or the other sort of clusters around the city of Boston or the city of Cambridge. Um, The first one will make my shareholders very happy, I hope, is its affordability. Norwood offers us... um, outstanding facilities um, at a fraction of the cost of Cambridge or even Boston. I think we're somewhere around probably paying 20% rent than what we would be paying in in, in Boston or, or Cambridge. Um, for a company of our size and our, uh, which is small, and our um, youthfulness, it just seemed illogical to me to spend enormous amounts of money on rent. It just really doesn't make a lot of sense, at least not to me. So affordability is important. Quality of life is very important. Um, Most of our workforce lives in the southern suburbs of Boston. We also have folks commuting from Rhode Island. Um, And what's really wonderful about Norwood is in terms of uh, commuting into it. So in Norwood, we are about 
not even a mile away from I-95. Um, if you live north of us and it's a reverse commute in the morning, um, which is a bonus. If you live anywhere in those southern suburbs of Boston, again, it's, it's a relatively easy commute. We're also about two miles away from um, Route 128 station, which is a, one of the major Amtrak stations. Um, and so folks who want to visit us, um, who are taking the train, it's incredibly simple for them to visit us. And we are about equidistant in terms, certainly in terms of commuting time from both Logan Airport and Providence Airport. Um, so great for international flights and very convenient for folks visiting us you know, from across the US uh, as well. So we really like it here. The Norwood itself um, has been very, very welcoming to us. Um, it's um, the people who live here are very, very friendly. Um, it's a really diverse community. Um, it has everything we need right at our fingertips, all the amenities we could possibly imagine. And again, at a very affordable, uh, very accessible price. We're, we're absolutely delighted. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't be happier. And we keep growing in Norwood. We started in 2014. Our first office was uh, a, probably the size of this room, plus a little bit more. Uh, again, we are three or four people. Uh, we now have um, on the floor of this building, John, I think we're about 30,000 square feet. And we're about to expand uh, and add an additional, I think, 20,000 square feet. Uh, so our commitment to Norwood is incredibly strong. We're very happy to be here. And my understanding, Yvonne, is that you're not the only bioscience company to have figured out that there's something going on here in Norwood. We, um, the, the biotech cluster of Norwood, as I, far as I know, has two companies in it, but um, the other company is uh, a company that's very familiar, I think, to your listeners, and that's Moderna. Um, it's not their corporate office, it's their uh, manufacturing site, and uh, I think research and development. I believe it's 200,000 square feet. That's an enormous site. And, you know, I guess that's how clusters start. It's, it's with two folks, and we'd be very, very happy to see it continue to grow. What does being in this, let's call it Metro Boston, Greater Boston area, what does that mean in terms of access to capital? So I'll take a step back. So we are part of a larger community. We're part of MassBio. Um, we're part of this um, hub that is the largest cluster of biotech slash healthcare companies on the planet. Um, and of course, we benefit from the same things that they do, which is access to um, extraordinary academic research institutions um, and uh, world-leading medical facilities. Um, I think pretty much for every single one of our clinical sites, we have sites in the Boston hospital system. Um, and whether it's members of our scientific advisory board, whether it's our uh, some of the folks who consult, they're all we all have ex we have examples for all of them that are local that are either at Harvard etc. Um, um, the um, University of Massachusetts, um, and so being part of that is is tremendously powerful. Um, in terms of access to capital, it's a little bit different for a public company, John. So we've sort of. Um, 
jumped over the stage of venture capital financing. Um, and um, But yes, we have a number of institutional investors, including some of our largest ones, that are based in Boston, downtown Boston. It's really easy to visit them. They're a few minutes away. Um, and that's very, very helpful. Uh, and of course, going from Boston to New York City is not particularly complicated. And again, as a publicly traded company, that's really the second biggest cluster of capital for, for us. You always have the opportunity as a CEO to pick up the phone and talk to the smartest person about any particular thing. That's in the nature of C CEOs. What organizations do you find are helpful to you to gather information, to share information? Wow, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, there's, there's no doubt about it that an organization, for example, like MassBio offers, amongst other things it offers, wonderful networking um, experiences. Um, so that's very helpful. The other sort of organizations that are helpful are around our disease states. The big annual cystic fibrosis conference in the US uh, and the big annual autoimmune conference, the American College of Rheumatology conference in the US. So again, tremendous opportunities there and through those organizations. Um, and uh, beyond that, uh, the patient advocacy conferences and, and again networks are are wonderful for um, networking and I guess the last thing would be uh, sort of uh, basic science so I remember earlier this year we were at the uh, New York Academy of Sciences for a two-day symposium that had to do with the biology that we target or the mechanism that we target and just a wonderful opportunity to meet people who are passionate about what we are you have so much going on that you've described to me that I'm sure that large parts of your day go into thinking about how can I flawlessly execute on that particular moment. But I also imagine there are times when you're able to step back a bit and say, if this succeeds, this, this work that I'm doing, it will potentially have a, an impact not just on what the immediate group of people are working on, but the science itself, how the science is done. Mm -hmm. Do you allow yourself to think in those terms at this point, or is that something you've set aside for down the road? Oddly enough, probably more often than you'd think in the sense that I think all of us have a very um, real understanding and appreciation that we are part of a larger scientific community. Um, so, for example, one of my daily rituals is a literature search. Um, I go on PubMed, I have my, my search terms, and I really try and be disciplined about this and take, even if it's 15 minutes of the day, in order to see, okay, what got published today? Um, and you cannot do that without appreciating that you're part of a much larger community. Um, so I think that's, that's really, really important. Um, it also honestly grounds you. Um, and it puts things in perspective. Um, none of us individually can possibly move the needle as much as we all do as a collective. Like many CEOs I've spoken with, Yuval Cohen is passionate about building high-performing teams and developing therapies for patients who need them. He's also in love with science. 
As he said, it's biology that I love the most. It has a beauty in it that's actually quite hard to capture in numbers. Yuval's words reflect those of Henri Poincaré, 19th century mathematician, physicist, and engineer, who said, the scientist does not study nature because it is useful to do so. He studies it because he takes pleasure in it, and he takes pleasure in it because it is beautiful. But the work of Yuval and his colleagues at Corbus has the potential to be useful in a profound way, to be a shaping voice in an entire field of biology. If successful, his focus on developing therapeutics to treat inflammatory and fibrotic diseases could help address unmet medical needs, including 30,000 Americans with cystic fibrosis and as many as 300,000 suffering from lupus. As Yuval says about the biology of the endocannabinoid system, there really isn't a lot of science fiction around it. The fiction is gone. You're just left with the science. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.